All right, thank you, Abigail, and good afternoon, Hallows Church. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for uh, joining us this afternoon. My name is Jeff, and I serve as one of the pastors here with our church up at the uh, North Expression that gathers together in Edmonds, but it is always uh, my privilege and my pleasure to be back here with you in Fremont in this way as we open our Bibles together and as we continue this journey through the book of Acts. It's been a pretty good journey so far. It's been an exhilarating a journey in many ways as we've seen the early church really uh, kind of explode into existence in Jerusalem. Many incredible things have been happening up to, uh, to this point, and last week Acts chapter 3 was no exception. If you were with us, you know that chapter 3 began on a very high and a very uh, hopeful note. Peter and John were heading into the temple when they came across a lame man, a crippled man, sitting outside the temple, and he was begging. He was begging for uh, spare change like he did every other day. And when this crippled man asked Peter and John for some money as they were on their way into the temple, Peter and John, they, they gave this man far more than he was asking for. We're told they looked this crippled man in the eye and they said to him, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up. Get up and walk, they told him. And we're told that this man who had been crippled from birth not only got up, it says we were told that he, he jumped up. He jumped to his feet. He entered the temple with Peter and John. And we're told he began running and leaping and praising God. The power of Jesus working through the apostles Peter and John broke into this man's life and transformed his, his life altogether in a moment's time. And that's what the gospel can do, both literally and figuratively, to anyone at any time. And not surprisingly, the people all around the temple, they were, they were astonished and they were filled with awe, we were told in verse 10. They knew who this guy was. They would see him there every day. And now this lame man was no longer lame. Now he was leaping. And many were celebrating and praising God and giving glory to God for what they were seeing for what, and for what they were uh, hearing from the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John. Many lives were being changed in the days and the weeks that followed Pentecost. In fact, as people witnessed this miracle here with the lame man and as word spread about this miracle and, and about the message behind this miracle, we're told in today's passage that many, many more believe. The number of men, it says, who believed came to 5,000. The number of men who believed, it says. This tells us that in Jerusalem, within uh, just weeks of Pentecost, there was a community of Christian believers in the uh, range of 15,000 men, women, and children, all of them confessing Jesus as Lord and as God. Some suggest that this number, 15,000, might have comprised anywhere from 5 to 10% of the entire population of the city of Jerusalem at that time. And one thing that the author Luke makes clear in the way that he describes all this is that, is that all this was happening not so, much as, not so much because of the acts of the apostle, so much as it was happening because of the acts of Jesus working in real time uh, through his apostles, the risen and ascended Jesus was physically gone, but he was spiritually present and active in every way orchestrating by the power of the Holy Spirit, a spiritual awakening in the lives and the hearts of thousands of people in a very short period of time. 
Many were celebrating, and rightly so. Many were giving glory to God for all that was happening. But as we turn the page into the very next passage, today's passage, chapter 4 of the book of Acts, what we see is that, is that not everybody was celebrating. We've seen many firsts so far through the book of Acts. We've seen the first sermon being preached. We've seen the first outpouring of the Spirit. We've seen the first church being birthed. And now today we're going to see another first. We're going to see the first pushback, really, the first persecution of those who would open their mouths to to talk and to uh, teach about Jesus. The gospel elicits a range of very different responses in those who hear it. As we've seen, it arouses interest and intrigue in some. But at the very same time, it can incite hostility and hatred in others. And so let's explore that in today's passage. Let's let's look at who was pushing back, why they were pushing back, and what happened. How How did Peter and John respond to that pushback? First of all, who was pushing back? Friends, think about this. Why would anyone have a problem with what was going on there. Lives were being changed. The sick were being healed. These people were selling their possessions to to anyone or to help anyone who who had need, whether inside the church or out. They were loving one another well. They were loving their their neighbors well. They were celebrating and, and praising God. Who would have a problem with any of this? Verse 1 tells us who. It says the priests the captain of the temple police and the Sadducees, it says, all came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. Peter and John were speaking to the people who had just witnessed this miracle, and they were telling them about Jesus, and they were telling them them that it was not them who had healed this lame man at all. It was the risen Jesus working through them. And then if you look down at verse 5, you see that others were, were coming into the fray too. It says the rulers and the elders and the scribes came into the scene, also wanting a piece of Peter and John. And we see in this passage these different groups of people coming together. It says they were confronting Peter and John, intimidating them in verse 2. And we we see that they seized and incarcerated them in verse 3. But again, why? Why were these people, why were all these people so quickly uniting together and pushing back against the message and the the messengers of Jesus in this way. The Sadducees, they were a sort of upper class religious group who had a certain political clout in that day. We know they didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They accepted some parts of the scripture as authoritative, but they rejected others. You might call them in that sense religious liberals. You could even say they were somewhat secular in much of their thinking. And then you have the scribes. These were the teachers of the the Mosaic law. Most of the scribes belonged to a religious group known as the Pharisees. And you might say this group was made up of of people who were hyper-religious. You might think of them as, as fundamentalists. This group held strictly to the letter of the law of the scriptures. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in an afterlife. 
You also have the temple police, those who had the power to enforce and to carry out whatever decisions might have been made in that situation by the powers that be. And then you've also got Annas, Annas and Caiaphas showing up in verse 6. It says, along with all the members of the high priestly family. Now you need to know this is the same high priest and the same crew of people who, were, we, uh, who we were told in Matthew chapter 26, verse 3, conspired to arrest Jesus in a, in a treacherous way and to kill him, that verse says. And so these were the very same people who wanted to kill Jesus, and these were the very same people who made certain that Jesus was killed. And here they are again, being called in to deal with a situation they thought they had already dealt with when, when Jesus was crucified. The trial of Jesus was effectively being reopened, and Peter and John were, in essence, being arraigned before the same court that tried and condemned and killed Jesus. And so what must Peter and John have been thinking in this moment that they might be next? What would they do? How would they respond in this moment? Peter had already shown in the past that he was prone to... uh, a kind of buckle in the face of danger. You may recall that he denied Jesus three times in Luke chapter 22 after Jesus had been uh, taken into custody. Why? To protect himself, to preserve his life. And so would he do the same this time around? We'll see in a moment, but first here's what I'd like you to understand at this point. You've got these various groups of people rising up against Peter and John who have nothing at all in common with one another. They have no intellectual common ground. They are from very different walks of life. You've got religious people and political people. You've got wealthy people and common people. You've got secular people and military people, many of whom were often at odds with one another. And yet what we see in this passage is that there was common ground between these groups after all, and that common ground was the gospel and their disdain for it. Friends, the gospel arouses interest and intrigue in some, but at the very same time, it incites hostility and hatred in others, and it's been that way all along, beginning in this very moment in Acts chapter 4. What we see in this passage here is what we also have seen from this point forward, really. We see a, a, a characteristic pattern, a pattern of opposition and hostility to Jesus and to the gospel anytime it is moving and anytime it is advancing. We're going to see this pattern play out again and again as we journey through the book of Acts. We see this pattern quite clearly across 2,000 years of, of church history. We see this pattern today too, don't we? When the gospel is advancing, opposition rises up and it resists its movement, sometimes violently so. Just last week, the Chinese government demolished a church to the ground where thousands of Christians gathered together regularly to worship Jesus. They destroyed the church and they detained its pastors. Why? Because the government said they were, quote, gathering a crowd to that gathering a crowd to disturb social order. In other parts of the world right now, Christians are being imprisoned and tortured and raped and killed simply for aligning themselves with Jesus. 
Persecution takes many forms. It looks different for people in some parts of the world than it does uh, for others. But in our part of the world, it takes the form not so much of physical persecution as intellectual persecution and social persecution, sometimes very subtly so, other times not. There are parts of our Bible that are increasingly coming under attack in our culture as hateful and bigoted, as unacceptable. And the pushback, it seems, is only going to intensify further with time. But he told us to expect this, didn't he? Jesus did. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus said, Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. In John chapter 15, verses 18 to 19, Jesus said, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. And because I have chosen you out of the world, the world will hate you too, Jesus said. Friends, if you're really following Jesus, if you're living for Jesus, if you're opening your mouth and speaking about Jesus, there will be pushback, there will be resistance and opposition at one level or another in this context and in every context. And so what does that pushback look like in your life right now? Is it there? Does it exist? Are you experiencing any resistance or opposition in your life because of Jesus? And if it's not there, if it doesn't exist, what does that mean? Is that a problem? I must admit the Lord has been convicting me about this recently. He's really been challenging me to consider whether I've grown far too comfortable, far too complacent, far too shallow even in my walk with Jesus. He's been asking me a question over and over again lately, and the question is this. Jeff, are you really listening to Jesus? Are you really following Jesus? Or are you mostly asking Jesus to listen to you and to follow you? Many of us do that, don't we? We invite Jesus to join us in our lives. We invite Jesus to be a part of our safe and stable and successful lives. But that's not following Jesus, not according to Jesus. He never said, I'm inviting you into a life of safety and stability and success. He said, I'm inviting you into a life of surrender and sacrifice and suffering. And so are you asking Jesus to follow you as you go about your life? Or are you, or are you accepting his invitation to, to listen to him and to follow him? I've been wrestling with that, I've been praying about that, and I've been doing some things about that. I've been allowing Jesus to really uh, kind of push me out of some of my own comfort and convenience in some new ways, not worrying about the fallout or the pushback or the consequences, but leaving, leaving all that to him. Because I do believe that comfort and convenience and success can pose a far greater threat to a vibrant walk with Jesus for you and I than persecution ever will. And so we've seen who was pushing back and some of the ways they were pushing back, but let's consider for a few moments the question, uh, why? 
Why were they pushing back? And why are people still pushing back today? Why is the gospel so offensive to so many? This passage reminds us of one of the biggest reasons that people take offense to the gospel. And you see it in verse verse 12. Verse 12 says this. It says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name, no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. And so the Bible, it it teaches quite clearly that Jesus is the one way, he's the only way, and there is no other way to get to God than through Jesus. That's what Peter says here. That's what the New Testament says repeatedly. That's what Jesus himself says too, right? In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. No other name, no other way, no other religion, no other worldview by which you can be saved. The culture in Jerusalem in the first century did not like that. The prevailing view in that time and that place was that there were many gods. The Romans who were in charge were fine with that too. They, they said, you can have your God. They can have theirs. You can profess the name of whatever God you want. That's fine. That's great. As long as you also worship the emperor. As long as you also profess the name of Caesar as your Lord. But what that meant is that by definition, you could not ever claim that your God was the one God or the supreme or superior God over all the others. Of course, that didn't really work well for followers of Jesus because once they understood and professed that Christ is Lord, they could no longer profess that Caesar was Lord too. And that brought them into conflict with the Roman government. That brought them into conflict with other uh, groups as well. And we see some very similar tension and conflict today in our own culture, don't we? Many push back and some push back hard on the Christian claim that Jesus is the only name, the one name, the only name by which you can relate to God. They say that's ridiculous, that's narrow, that's repugnant, that's dangerous. One name, only one name, are you serious? You can't say that. Our culture tells us there are many ways, many names, many names which can be called upon. Some of you have probably seen the movie Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. I'm not sure I can exactly recommend this movie, but it is quite humorous in parts. Ricky Bobby, you see, is a professional race car driver, and at one point he crashes his car during a race. And what happens is you see him uh, scrambling out of his vehicle and he begins frantically running around the track thinking that he's on fire and crying out for help as a result. First he cries out, help me Jesus. And then he cries out, help me Jewish God, followed by help me Allah. But he doesn't stop there. He also yells out, help me Tom Cruise. Use your witchcraft on me to get the fire off of me. And finally, he cries out, help me, Oprah Winfrey. In other words, when it comes to God, who's to say for sure? Who's to know for sure? Why not hedge your bets? 
They're all valid. You can believe whichever one you want, or you can believe all of them at once. The theology of Ricky Bobby is called religious pluralism, and it was prevalent in first century Jerusalem, just as it is also quite prevalent in 21st century Seattle. And its basic premise is that there is no one religion that is more true or more valid than another. All religions are fundamentally equal. They are fundamentally valid pathways to God. And there are many diverse voices sounding the same sentiment all around us today. Rabbi Shmuley Botek, a prominent Jewish writer and thinker, said this. He said, I am absolutely against any religion that says one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is anything different than spiritual racism, he says. Mahatma Gandhi, who believed in the religion of Hinduism, he was a Hindu, he said it this way, he said, my position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. And the spiritual giant of our day, Oprah Winfrey, and I say that half joking but half serious, after all, Ricky Bobby cried out to her in his moment of need, and others do too. Oprah tells her millions and millions of followers that one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. She says, actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. Our culture likes to tell us that, don't they? That there are many equally valid paths to God. And don't you dare say otherwise. Hence the pushback to the gospel. Both then and now. Because of what it claims. Jesus is the only way. Christianity is the one true religion. You can't say that. That's arrogant. That's narrow. That's very hurtful and very hateful. You can believe in Jesus, that's fine. Just don't say he's the only way or a better way or the superior way to find God. After all, the only way we will ever find peace is to agree that all religions are fundamentally the same. But can that even be true? Think about it. You say it's okay for me to believe in Jesus as one among many, right? As long as I don't say he's the one way or the only way. Do you mean I can believe in the Jesus who said... Before Abraham was, I already existed, claiming to be eternal. Do you mean I can believe in the Jesus who said I'm going to die and three days later I'm going to rise again? I'm going to shed my blood for the forgiveness of your sins so that you might be reconciled to your creator. Do you mean I can believe in the Jesus who said I'm going to heaven but I'm coming back and when I do I'm going to make everything new. I'm going to destroy death and evil and suffering once and for all. That's the only Jesus we have in history. You can say he was wrong or you can say he was right, but what you can't say is that he's the same as all the others. What you can't do is put him in a row with, with all the others. No other founder of any other religion said anything remotely resembling what Jesus said. Every other founder said, follow my teachings and I can tell you the way to God. But nobody ever said, I am God, and I'm not here to tell you the way. I am the way, the only way, and I've made a way for you because you never could have made a way yourself. If we're going to be intellectually honest, logically speaking, can all religions really be equally valid and 
equally true. Aren't the claims of every major religion mutually exclusive one to the other? Judaism says that Jesus was not the Messiah. Christianity says Jesus is the Messiah. They can't both be right, can they? Hinduism says that God has incarnated himself hundreds of thousands of times. Christianity says that one time the word became flesh and dwelt among us uniquely and unrepeatably. They can't both be right, can they? Islam says heaven is gained as a result of your good works, outweighing your bad works. Christianity says your good works could never possibly be outweighed by your bad works. Hence the cross to pay for your sins. They simply can't both be right. C.S. Lewis was correct in saying that Jesus cannot just be a good moral teacher. He cannot be considered as one good teacher among many. And the reason why is because of the audacious and outlandish claims that he made. Lewis concluded, rightly so, I think that Jesus must either be a lunatic, a liar, or your Lord. There are no other options because Jesus uh, didn't really leave us any. Friends, Jesus was not just one of many pointers. He was and is the very point of it all. Jesus is not a prophet, but he is the fulfillment of all prophecy. He is not just a Lord and a King. He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He is not just a godly man. He is the God man. Our world tells us that there are many names we can call upon. There are many, any number of saviors. The world tells us, here's what will give you purpose, here's what will give you meaning, here's what will uh, give you satisfaction, here is what you need most. The list of false saviors is ever expanding, but according to the Bible, every last one of them is in inadequate. They cannot and do not and will not save and do for you what you are asking of them. The fundamental offense of Christianity has always really been the same. You cannot save yourself by what you do or how well you do it. That you're a sinner in need of a savior and that there is no other name under heaven but Jesus that can do anything about that to help you. This was the message proclaimed over and over again in the early church. It didn't matter if the apostles were uh, talking to Jews or Gentiles, to ordinary people or, or religious people of the highest ranking officials in the Roman Empire. The message was the same and it still is. Repent, believe, look to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, submit yourself to him, trust in him, look to him for the hope and the healing and the new life that only he can give. The scandal of Christianity to many is that there is only one way. But the good news is that despite all of our selfishness, and all of our stubbornness, and all of our sin, there still is a way. The only Jesus we have, the only Jesus we know anything about is the one in the Bible, and if he if he is who this Bible says he is, if he is who he says he is, then he has to be superior to all the rest. If it's true, then he is the one way, and if it's not true, then he is no way at all. But it's absolutely nonsense 
to say that you can believe that Jesus is just one among many. There is no other name but Jesus. And so have you called upon his name? If you haven't done that, I hope you'll do that this afternoon. And I'd love to talk with you about that. So we've seen who was pushing back, and we've seen why they were pushing back. And now let's take a few moments to see what happened next. Let's, let's see the response of Peter and John to this pushback they were experiencing. And what I want us to see is the way in which Peter and John responded to these leaders, these very high-powered people, out of an entirely new and transformed identity because of the gospel. Listen to verse 13. It says, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus, it says. So the very same Peter who <clears throat> denied Jesus three times in order to save himself is now showing extraordinary courage speaking boldly, speaking pointedly to the, to the same people who killed Jesus and to the same people who, who had the power to snuff him out too. Nevertheless, Peter is unafraid. He is unwavering. In verse 10, he kind of calls them out. Peter says to these men, it is you. It is you who killed Jesus. But it is God who raised him up, he said. In verse 14, he says, it is the risen and reigning Jesus who healed this man standing next to us. It was not us. In verses 19 and 20, he says, threaten us all you want, but we will not stop talking about Jesus. The leaders were astonished at the fact that these men standing in front of them were so bold and they were operating out of a new system of identity. And do you know what they attributed that to? It says they could recognize, they recognized that Peter and John had, had been with Jesus. They could tell that they had been with Jesus. Do you think people would recognize that of us? Peter and John, they showed extraordinary confidence, even though they were ordinary men with an ordinary record. If you have an ordinary record and ordinary accomplishments, you usually have an ordinary amount of confidence. If you have an extraordinary record and an extraordinary set of accomplishments, then you often have an extraordinary amount of confidence. Outside of the gospel, that's kind of how things often work in the world. Most people's identity are based on relative uh, accomplishments and relative performance. People generally find their self-worth and their self-esteem by being um, smarter or, or better or better looking or more accomplished or richer or more talented than other people. But it's always relative, isn't it? Which means there are always some people you feel superior to and others you feel inferior to. Peter and John were ordinary men with an ordinary record. And in that society, ordinary men who didn't have the schooling or the pedigree or the education would never have addressed these high-powered officials in the ways that they did. Peter and John were uneducated and untrained, and yet they, they now had a certain boldness, a certain confidence that was independent of their 
accomplishments. Their boldness did not arise out of their accomplishments because they didn't really have any. It didn't arise out of anything they had ever done, yet they were speaking with confidence and with authority and without fear to these powers that be in Jerusalem. And these powers that be, they were baffled. In verse 16, we see that they did not know what to do with Peter and John. They tried to shut them up, but that didn't work. In verses 21 and 22, it says that after threatening them further, they found no way to punish them, and they, and they released them. Peter and John, they were not intimidated by those who were above them, whether they were people that were above them socially or economically or educationally. But you also see as you track their journeys through the New Testament that you, you see that they also never acted superior to anybody that might have been below them either. This was because their identities and their self-esteem were no longer based on their works or their accomplishments. They were based on Christ's work and Christ's accomplishments for them. And very interestingly, I think at some level that this new identity that they were operating out of was actually uh, rooted at some level in the exclusivity of Jesus and his claims. Their transformed identities and, and our transformed identities are actually tied to the claim that Jesus is the one way and the only way to be saved. And here's why I say that. If Jesus was just one more teacher among many, one more teacher saying, live like this, live like that, and you can find God, that doesn't really change the very basis of a person's identity, does it? All that really does is give you one more set of things that you have to perform. Many well-meaning Christians will say something like this. They'll say, oh, I could never be a Christian. It's far too exclusive to say that Jesus is the only way. No, I believe that good people of all faiths can find God. But think about this carefully with me. If that's the case, if good people of all faiths are those that find God, what about us bad people? Because I think you just left me out. Some will try to tell me, oh, you're exaggerating. You're a good person, Jeff. But I know my own heart. If you believe that good people of all faiths can find God, isn't what you're really saying is that the good people find God and the bad, bad people don't? The good are in and the bad are out? And isn't that actually far more exclusive than the claims of Christianity? Because the gospel says it doesn't matter who you are or, or, or what you've done. Jesus welcomes you anyways. And so in your effort to be more inclusive by saying that all good people can find God, you've just become more exclusive. And you've just left me out. Because in a lot of ways, on a lot of days, I'm a, I'm a failure, morally speaking. What about you? What if Jesus is not one teacher among many who shows you how to be good but what if he came and he was good for you and he paid the penalty for your being bad? If that's the case, then through Jesus Christ, not only the good, but the bad can come too. It's not the good are in or the bad are, and the bad are out. It's the humble who are in and the proud who are out. The gospel is not for those who think they are good. It's for those who know they are not good and can see their desperate need for grace. 
The gospel is exclusive, that is to be sure, but the gospel is an incredibly inclusive exclusivity, isn't it? It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter if you're a liar or a cheat or a thief. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor or a lawyer or a fast food worker or unemployed. The gospel does not discriminate. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're a drug addict or a prostitute or even a cold-blooded killer. It doesn't matter. You're all sinners in need of grace, every last one of you, the Bible tells us. And you're all welcome, the gospel says. Talk about offensive. The gospel is offensive to some because of its exclusivity. But it's offensive to others because of its inclusivity. No matter who you are or what you've done or where you've been, he's, he's waiting for you. All you need to do is repent, turn to him, call on the only name that can save you, and he will. You put your trust in Jesus and you rest in what he's done for you. And God the Father delights in you as a result, and he welcomes you home. And he begins to change you from the inside out, no matter who you are. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, let's pray.